This week on Blue 58, the Packers are down a starter for two key early season games. How will this affect position battles and the early portion of the season? We'll dive in. Then we've got a new stat to talk about. We'll take a weird trip down memory lane, including the time a 5'8"-inch wide receiver was Brett Favre's number two target. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, excited to be with you here for number 88. 88 is a fitting number for this episode because Ty Montgomery is going to be fitting in, I guess, to a bigger role with the Packers now that Aaron Jones is facing a two-game suspension as a part of the league's substance abuse policy. First, this should not be that big of a surprise. I guess the, the initial reaction for me, and it looks like a few other people around Packers Internet, is that we kind of, I don't want to say didn't see this coming, but forgot that this was coming. This was going to be a foregone conclusion pretty much since he got pulled over last fall. This was just the natural progression, and it's probably something we should be watching out for with Lance Kendricks at some point because he too was arrested on a similar charge during last season. Before we get to the football implications, just one thing I want to touch on in regard to this situation If you are ever pulled over by, it is for anything, whether you've done it or not, it is a bit right away, as Aaron Jones did. Due process is there for a reason, both for the cops and for you. Whether you did it or not, at the side of the road is not the time or place to sort that out. So, just let things play out, whether you are guilty or not. And it appears that Aaron Jones actually was, and uh, this probably would have happened anyway, but at least give your lawyer the opportunity to do a little work, okay? My father-in-law attorney would probably want to say that. My attorney father-in-law, rather. So, be that as it may. Football implications here. I think there are two major, relatively major ramifications. The first is to the roster in a couple different areas. First, we've got to sort out what's going to happen with the running back position. Does this mean a guy like Devontae Mays has a chance to get a little bit of extra attention early in the season? If the Packers are really committed to keeping three running backs on the roster, it would seem like that is a a fairly logical conclusion. He could get an extra shot, but it's not just at running back. Having Jones not count against the roster for two weeks gives the Packers essentially a 54th roster spot. It gives them two weeks to think about a different player at a different position. Maybe they want to keep an extra defensive back to get a couple extra weeks worth of film on this guy or just a look, a longer look at him in practice. I think this could also play out at an, in an interesting way at quarterback. I think the Packers will probably keep three quarterbacks unless somebody knocks their socks off with an offer for brilliant program. I I just think there's a good chance they're going to program. I I just think there's a good chance they're going to keep all three because I don't think that Brian Gutekunst bites the bullet and cuts Brett Hundley. There's I don't think there's a reason to cut him. If you can get a trade for him for pretty much anything at this point, that's one thing. But I don't think there's any reason to cut him. So I think they go into the start of the season with three quarterbacks on the roster. And this gives them a little bit of extra leeway to do that. But really, that roster spot that would have gone to Aaron Jones, anyone could go to any position, but it is going to be key 
because it does give the Packers a little bit of extra flexibility. The second major ramification is in terms of schedule. Early season games are hard to figure. It's not really until week three, four, or five or so that you really get an idea what you have in a team early on in the season. Nobody's really played meaningful football yet. Nobody's played strength against strength at any point to that point. And so teams really haven't formed their identities to this point. So trying to draw too many results from, oh, they played this way against this team and this way against this team early in the season is not super important. So bear that in mind as the Packers play the Bears and the Vikings in weeks one and two. However, the significant thing here to me is that these are division games, particularly against the Vikings. If the Packers drop one of these two games, it could come back to bite them late in the season as they're going for some of those playoff positioning sort of games. One game could make a huge difference when it comes down to who wins the NFC North. And when you win your division, you get to host a playoff game. Whether that's good or bad, there's all sorts of issues with the the playoff records and how things are decided seating-wise and stuff like that. But this is how things are. And this suspension has to be considered in light of that. One single game could make a lot of difference for the Packers or for the Vikings or for the Bears, for that matter, late in the season. Now, whether or not the Bears are contenders, who knows? And who among us really knows anything about these teams at this point? But I think you just have to keep that in mind as you evaluate this situation. Those are the two main areas, the roster and the schedule. I don't think this affects how Aaron Jones ultimately plays this season. I'm not worried about it from that perspective. I don't think there's really any need to worry about it from that perspective. He seems, based on his response online, to understand the significance of what he has done and whether or not an arrest for marijuana is super significant is, I guess, kind of beside the point. It's it's against the rules right now, and whether those rules are right or not, they are rules that he has to abide by. So hopefully he can move past this and just get it sorted out. It seems like for all intents and purposes, he is prepared to do that. Aaron Jones is particularly relevant as we move into our second topic here. I want to talk about a new stat that I'm working on. We have had mixed results with our custom sort of advanced stats over the couple of years or the last year that we've been doing this. Uh, a couple of them I really like. Um, I like the ball hawk stuff that we were tracking last year. I think that was informative, uh, particularly in the way that it showed that the backers were really bad at getting to the football last year. Uh, a little bit less crazy about run percentage and uh, total pressures just ended up being more time intensive to track than I think we planned on it being. So uh, that one kind of has gone by the wayside. But uh, ball hawks was was worthwhile. I think we've got a new one here to add to the mix because it's going to go hand in glove with something else that we're working on that I should have ready in the next couple of weeks. But it's a it's a thing that I'm tentatively calling explosive play percentage basically how often a player produces an explosive play. What is an explosive play? Well, I'm glad that you asked, podcast listener. You you hear NFL coaches talk about explosive plays a lot. I think during the Mike Sherman era or early on in the Mike, Mike McCarthy era, they, the general standard for explosive plays was like 12 yards for a run and 16 yards for a pass. It was kind of arbitrary like that. So for the purposes of this stat, we are just going to define explosive plays 
just as 10 yards for a run and 15 yards for a pass. Before I get too far, I want to say that I can't take entire credit for this. The estimable Twitter Packers commentator and general football commentator, Justice Mosqueda, put this together on his very excellent website, the name of which escapes me at the point, but you should definitely check him out on Twitter. He applied this stat to college quarterbacks, and I'm trying to expand it out to NFL players as a whole. Explosive plays. How often does a player produce them? It's very important, not because explosive plays are necessarily huge indicators of success, but you, it's better to have them than to not have them. Um, the entire premise of Moneyball, um, the concept, not the movie or the book, uh, the kind of the sabermetrics was to set yourself up for big plays. Big plays are obviously good. Um, big plays accentuate the small plays and make they kind of work symbiotically. Um, one 15-yard play makes every defender more susceptible to smaller plays in the future. It's kind of that old dichotomy of the run setting up the pass and things like that, just as a concept. Big plays and small plays work together, and you want to be able to produce the big plays relatively regularly. And you want to put the guys who produce them regularly in position to do so more often. So how do you figure out who's producing them more, most regularly? Well, like I said, explosive plays. 10 yards for a run, 15 yards per pass. What you do is you just total up the plays that meet those criteria, a run of at least 10 yards and a pass or catch of at least 15 yards, and you divide them by the amount of plays that a player is on the field. For example, last season, Aaron Rodgers was on the field for 417 plays. He ran the ball for 10 or more yards four times, and he completed 31 passes that were longer than 15 yards. So that gives him 35 total explosive plays out of 417 that was that he was on the field, an explosive play percentage of 8.39, a little less than 1 in 10. For some context, his percentage in 2016 was 9.2 in 20.4, and in 2014, his MVP season, it was 10.17. So, Aaron Rodgers was a little bit better than his bad 20, uh, actually a little bit worse than his bad 2015 season in terms of explosive plays. Uh, For non-quarterbacks, you're looking at a guy like Aaron Jones leading the way. He had 236 total snaps last year and he produced 12 runs and no receptions of that met explosive play criteria, a rate of just over 5%. For comparison's sake, Todd Gurley of the Los Angeles Rams was between 6 and 7%. So Aaron Jones, very good, but not quite as good as one of the league's truly elite players. This is something we'll be keeping an eye on as the Packers season develops. Are the Packers as a team producing explosive plays? And who in particular is producing them? And are they getting enough opportunities to do so? This is going to go kind of hand in glove, as I said, with another stat that I'm working on called usage rate. If you look at NBA stats, usage rate is a is a key, key stat there. This will kind of mirror that in ways that I'll explain in a couple weeks. So keep an eye out for that and uh, let me know how useful you think something like this actually is. We're going to get weird uh, for a second, and um, I don't mean like 
uncomfortable weird. I mean, I, I want to talk about some weird things in relatively recent Packers history. The Packers have been around so long that, um, you know, they just tend to produce weird things, um, unusual happenings. Um, when I was in, in college doing radio broadcasting, uh, calling a lot of sports games and, and stuff like that, one of the things that was always in the back of my mind was uh, the longer you do stuff like this, the more, the higher the chances that you're going to see something that's truly unusual or unique. And wouldn't you know it, in one of the last games I ever called in college, there was a tremendous uh, second half comeback by a girls basketball team that culminated with a buzzer beater and then an overtime victory. It just so happened I worked out that I was calling a game like that. If you follow sports or a particular team long enough, you're going to start to see some weird things happen. And there's going to be some weird storylines and some weird things that end up developing. And things can work together in ways that you may not always expect or anticipate. So I want to look at a couple unusual stories. And uh, this is going to lead into a series um, that I want to talk about here in a second. So starting with weird stories. And these are not by any means an exhaustive list, but I've got a few interesting slash unusual things of recent Packers history and one that takes us all the way back to the 50s. I got to start with the Randy Moss saga. In 2007, uh, Brett Favre was openly campaigning to bring Randy Moss to Green Bay. Randy Moss wanted out of Oakland and Oakland made it pretty easily understood that Randy Moss was available. In theory, every player is always available if the offer is good enough, but Oakland was ready to sell, and Brett Favre wanted Randy Moss. The long and short of it is, obviously, the Packers didn't end up getting Randy Moss, but he ended up heading off to New England. But if you look into it, there was actually a pretty generous offer potentially in the works from the Packers. And depending on who you ask and which source you uncover, it could have included a first-round pick and potentially Aaron Rodgers. That sounds ludicrous now, but consider at the time that Aaron Rodgers had just finished up his second year. He had played virtually not at all, and the reports out of practice were not super great. The Packers could very easily have given up, you know, a a prospect at this point in Rodgers for a proven, proven commodity in Randy Moss, albeit one who is a little bit damaged goods. This story sticks with me not because of the the possibility of uh, Rodgers being shipped out to Oakland or the, I guess, somewhat wonderful to picture idea of Randy Moss catching passes from Brett Favre, but just because I can't let go something that I heard on ESPN radio. Gary, wherever you are when you're listening to this, you're going to roll your eyes because I have told him this story so many times. I was out with my a, a couple of buddies. It, it would have been the Friday or the Saturday night during the NFL draft because he was traded at or around draft weekend, something like that. I was out with a couple of friends, was headed home like 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and I heard on ESPN radio Chris Mortensen, um, or, or a report saying Chris Mortensen is indicating that a deal was done in principle to send Randy Moss to Green Bay. I was so excited that I went home, logged onto the internet, which was something that took a little bit more doing back then, 
looked for reports, couldn't find anything, but I was solid enough in the belief that I wrote my dad a note that said, hey, Randy Moss is coming to Green Bay. The next day, I woke up, no news. Wow, surely it's only a matter of time. That afternoon, a Sunday afternoon, the news broke that Randy Moss had been traded to the New England Patriots. I have never been able to track down anything resembling confirmation of that story. And I doubt that I ever will, but I believe it in my heart. I believe that I heard Chris Mortensen confirm that Randy Moss was coming to Green Bay. And really, that's the kind of story that I'm looking for here as we look at weird stuff that happens in the offseason, stuff that you are convinced was going to happen. Is there a guy that you were convinced the Packers were going to draft? Uh, Did you see Brett Favre doing something weird out in the Green Bay community? If you got a story like that, let me know. Uh, I was looking at something else uh, unrelated to weird Packer stories and happened to remember the Cedric Benson era in Green Bay as I move into the second of these strange stories in, in recent Green Bay history. You remember the 2012 season, the Packers were in such dire straits during training camp in terms of their running back position that they brought in former, what was he, the second overall pick, uh, fourth overall pick, Cedric Benson to training camp. On paper, it made a lot of sense. Old, sure, but just the previous year he had racked up a thousand yards on 273 carries for the Cincinnati Bengals, averaging 3.9 yards per carry. But as we all know, it really didn't work out for Cedric Benson and the Packers, and that really should not have been a surprise because more than 10% of Cedric Benson's yards in 2011, the year before he signed in Green Bay, came on three carries, a 42-yarder, a 39-yarder, and a 33-yarder. Those were the only carries that Cedric Benson had that were longer than 20 yards the entire season that he played in Cincinnati before he ended up in Green Bay. Sure, he averaged a fairly respectable 3.9 yards per carry, but if you take those three runs out, he's all the way down to 3.4. Still, all the beat reporters went nuts, It looked like, I I remember somebody saying, it may have been Bob McGinn, that he was clearly the most talented running back that the Packers had had since Amon Green. Yeah, about that. He averaged three and a half yards per carry in five games for the Packers, scored one whole touchdown before he injured his foot and was never heard from again. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Speaking of running backs, let's dial it back to 1961. John F. Kennedy is president. And he happens to be close friends with another, I guess, member of the East Coast community who now happens to be in Green Bay. JFK is campaigning in Wisconsin, and he happens to meet Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi receives JFK's personal phone number and an assurance that if he ever needs anything, he only need give JFK a call and it will be taken care of. Well, as it so happened... He did need a favor because in 1961, Paul Horning had been called to active military duty and had been stationed in Kansas during the lead up to the 1961 NFL title game. Reportedly, according to Paul Horning, Vince Lombardi gave JFK a call, said, can you help me out? I could use a running back for the NFL championship. And JFK made it happen. In 1961, that's that big of a deal. But can you imagine if something like that happened today? Say there was an NFL coach who happens to be close friends 
with the President of the United States. Maybe even wrote him a letter congratulating him on his election. Perhaps also the quarterback uh, for this head coach is also a known supporter of the president to the point that maybe he even displayed a hat of this president in his locker and refused to answer questions about it when asked about it. Say, to narrow it down a little bit more specifically, this team was the New England Patriots, which they are, and they happened to be playing in the Super Bowl, which very well could happen. And someone, say, Rob Gronkowski was in a little bit of a legal kerfuffle. Couldn't imagine that happening. And Bill Belichick gave President Trump a call and said, can you clear this up for me? I got a Super Bowl to play. And Donald Trump made it happen. Just, you think things are crazy now. The world might actually come to an end. Just the takes, the takes, the takes that would happen. Wow. It would be incredible. Uh, Got a good listener suggestion for something like this. Uh, Let's wind back the clock a year. Remembering perhaps some of our lofty expectations for the potential trade market for Brett Hundley. Listener Andy Monday writes, You know how people were delusional in their trade expectations for Brett Hundley. I heard people say that with a great 2017 preseason, we could trade him for a first or a second round pick. And I do have to interject, that was not a minority viewpoint, I don't think. Uh, I think that Andy is correct there. There were a lot of people who thought that if Hundley played well, there was a good chance the Packers could pick up a pretty decent draft pick for him, at least a second round pick. Well, Andy continues... He was terrible. Not great. Uh, The Packers lost a bunch of games. Yes, the D was a big part of the losses too. And we ended up with the 14th pick in the draft. Then we traded that pick for, wait for it, a first rounder next year. I guess, writes Andy, that Brett Hundley did play into a first round pick. This is one of those things that's one of those quasi-internet memes. Show me the error here. I guess technically Andy isn't wrong. In a way, Brett Hundley did help the Packers trade for an additional first-round pick. In a way. If he had been better, there's no way the Packers would have had the 14th overall pick to trade to the New Orleans Saints in part to get that extra first-rounder next year. It could have happened. Or I guess it did happen. It didn't could have happened. It did happen. Brett Hundley played into the Packers getting an extra first-round pick. By the way, a chance for me to plug the trade tracker on thepowersweep.com. Check it out. It'll help you keep track of all these trades that the Packers have made and what they've gotten in the process. Um, it It's interesting to follow a few of these threads. My favorite recent one is the Laurenti McRae trade that happened all the way back in 2016. Ended up being a conditional seventh round pick, which the Packers got. And it was in this year's draft, and they used it on one of their three guys. I don't know exactly which one it was. It was either Looney or Bradley or Donaldson. One of those three guys. Uh, very, very astute insight there, John. One of the three seventh-round picks. Anyway, last particularly weird thing before we dive into a, a trip down a particular player's memory lane here. Gary suggested this one to me. For new listeners, that will be Gary Zillaby, one of my, well, my not one of my, my only partner at thepowersweep.com. Um, he always likes to explore the permutations of the Ron Wolf, Mike Holmgren saga. What would have happened if Ron Wolf had just said, I can be the general manager, or you can have more personnel responsibilities? How would that tree have played out? It's not really clear 
how things would have played out in the early or in the late 90s. But in the early 2000s, the Packers could have had options. If things didn't go well with Holmgren, or if Ron Wolf even had wanted to go in a different direction, there would have been a lot of opportunity there. Here is the list of potential general manager candidates in the building while Mike Sherman was the executive VP and general manager. The director of player finance was Andrew Brandt, who writes for the Monday Morning Quarterback, among other places. Uh, Their director of college scouting was John Dorsey, and their director of pro personnel was Reggie McKenzie. Any one of those guys could easily have taken over for Mike Sherman or even have been the general manager instead of Mike Sherman. But had Mike Holmgren gotten the opportunity, maybe none of those guys would have been in the pipeline at all. Who knows? Interesting permutations of history. One of the guys the the Packers did bring in under Mike Sherman's tenure as GM was Antonio Chapman. And I'll wrap up our short little trip down memory lane here by talking about Mr. Chapman. Five feet, eight inches, Antonio Chapman ended up in the NFL after two very good years in the Arena Football League and was brought to the Packers to be pretty much just a return specialist. Remember those days when the Packers and the rest of the NFL was obsessed with finding the next great guy who would only return punts and kicks? I do. It didn't seem to really even make sense at at the time. Like you're going to waste a roster spot on a guy who just returns punts and kicks? Okay, I hear you all talking about Jeff Janis, I guess. But uh, <laughs> why? Like, can he do any do other things? Well, as it turned out, in a way, he could. Because in 2005, admittedly, a bit of a lost season, but in 2005, uh, Antonio Chapman actually ended up as the Packers' number two receiver. He had 4,549 yards and four touchdowns. And this is the sort of thing that makes me a little bit sympathetic to the people to say, that maybe the Packers didn't get as much as the as they could have out of Brett Favre. I mean, when a five foot eight inch former Arena Football League player is your number two receiver, you're not doing super hot. I mean, Donald Driver was great that year. He had twelve hundred yards. Don't get me wrong, but it seems like you should be able to do a little bit better than Antonio Chapman. Maybe I'm wrong, but. Either way, this is the start of a segment I would like to do a little bit more often where we just remember random Packers guys. There are a lot of them. We came up with an impressive list, I think, the other day. That was about, uh, I think, 157 names long. So this will be a long series. But if you've got a guy you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Reach out on Facebook or Twitter or email. One of those places you'll be able to get in touch. While I've got you here, I wanted to talk for a second about LeBron James. Uh, You know obviously what's been going on with LeBron James. He is off to Los Angeles, spurning his childhood home of North Central, North, Northern Ohio. Let's just say that. And uh, it's it's not super great for the people of Ohio, um, or at least that's the spin here. Um, I don't know about that, though. And it's kind of, an, it, it delves or it, it drills down to an interesting and difficult to answer question for for fans. And Packers fans kind of have a similar conundrum here. LeBron James only won one title with the Cleveland Cavaliers. 
though he went to the finals a few times. He only got to the top of the mountain once. But for the time that he was in, in, not in Green Bay, in Cleveland, that city was as close to the center of the basketball universe as you could get. Cleveland was a contender all the time. Once LeBron, you know, hit age 20 or so, the Cavs were a legit NBA team. When he left, they were no longer a legit NBA team. When he came back, once again, a legit NBA team. Though they may have only won the big game, the big accomplishment, whatever, the championship once, they were relevant for a long, 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 long time. The Packers have been relatively similar. Through the Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers era, they've only won two Super Bowls. But for all intents and purposes, they've been relevant each and every year. There have been two-ish years where they really weren't. They had the 4-12 season in 2005, and then uh, last year where the Packers all fell apart when Aaron Rodgers got hurt. A couple other bumps in the roads here, road here and there. But by and large, they have been if not contenders, at the very least relevant each and every year. And I think that's really what you want as a fan. You just want to be relevant. Surely, you know, winning a Super Bowl is great. And I I would never turn down the opportunity for my team to win a Super Bowl. But even if I knew that the Packers were only going to win one, I would still enjoy being relevant every year. I mean, just look at a team like the Browns or a team like the Tennessee Titans. For the life of their existence, they've barely ever been relevant. Their one run to the Super Bowl was a team was the time when they were taken seriously as an NFL team. But since then, they've just been extras. They've just been supporting cast members on the way that other teams play on their way to do better things, more interesting things. They've never really been somebody that... The, NFL has to watch out for. The Packers are every year. And I think that's fun as a fan. Even if the Packers don't win, it's fun to watch. Sure, it would be great if they could win more Super Bowls, but I think this sort of thing, like the Cavaliers have gone through during this last era with LeBron, is really what you're hoping for. At least be relevant. As Vince Lombardi said, winning isn't the only thing, but making the effort to win is. Putting yourself in a position to make that is really the goal of every sports franchise. And as long as you're in the conversation, you're doing pretty well, even if you don't win at all. I know it's disappointing. I wish the Packers would have won more, you know, even now. And I think even when Aaron Rodgers retires, assuming that he doesn't win like five Super Bowls in a row, we're always going to be wondering, could the Packers have done more? And 2014 is always going to sting because they were so close. And I think they could have given the Patriots a good game in the Super Bowl. So close. But when all of this is said and done, the Packers will have been relevant for more than a generation. And I think we're doing pretty good. Maybe that's just me, though. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful and safe Independence Day. And if you have the time... Go outside and spend some time with your family. I'm not going to say check us out on Facebook and on Twitter. Don't do any of that this week. Check in back with us next week. 
we will have some content coming out on Thursday and Friday, but at least for Wednesday, take a day off. Maybe just listen to this while you're walking around waiting for fireworks to start. Stay cool, grill, light fireworks very safely, keep them away from your face and your extremities. Just be safe out there. Have a good time. Check us out wherever you can. And thank you for checking out Blue 58 and the Power Sweep. We do love to hear from you. Any feedback you give us helps us make this entire operation better and helps us all become Smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, Smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I have been your host, John Meerdink. We will see you back here next week on Blue 58.